0: Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts, to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid 1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. In many ways, Roy Meno was one of those teachers that made a profound impact in my life. I stepped into his music program at Sir John Franklin High School as a drummer in 1977, but quickly transitioned to the bass guitar. Over the next three years, I played in numerous ensembles and played a wide array of musical styles that would prove to be invaluable later on. I have often said I played more music and more varieties of music in my high school years than at any time since then. This was mostly from my own desire to play as much as possible, but also from the opportunities made available to me, and for that, I will always be indebted to Roy. While in the music program, I played for royalty, numerous commissioners' balls, a couple of messiahs, as well as annual concerts in the community, too numerous to recall. I traveled with the school bands to British Columbia, Yukon Territory, Alberta, to Europe in 1977, and many trips to some of the most remote communities in northern Canada. Through the 1970s, Roy was a cultural tour de force, facilitating and encouraging community engagement in the performing arts here in Yellowknife and across the north. His successes during his tenure as music teacher at Sir John Franklin High School and as director for community choral ensembles in Yellowknife is due largely to his vision, but also to the auspicious political, social, and cultural climate in the mid-1970s. At the time of this interview in the fall of 2018, Roy's dedication to the engagement of community in the performing arts was as strong as ever. Since moving to Orillia, Ontario, he has developed a renowned choral ensemble, produced choral performances where proceeds in the hundreds of thousands of dollars went to charity, and fundraised to refurbish the St. Paul Centre into a world-class performance venue. Roy's choice to come north came about in rather unorthodox but serendipitous circumstances in the spring of
1: 1973. We uh, threw a dart at a map, and it happened to land in the in, in Hudson's Bay. And the next day, I phoned uh, Yellowknife and asked if they needed a music teacher. And it just the music teacher had just resigned a week before or something, so they were looking for somebody. And it was very serendipitous. It was just a fluke. And with three references, I got a job in Yellowknife and
0: uh, in teaching in the high school. So that would have been your phone call, and your decision to move north would have been in 72? 72, so 72
1: or 3. I think it was the summer of 73. That spring was uh, just, and I took a leave of absence from a job that I had in North York and Toronto for a year to try it out. And then uh was there 14 years in, in Yellowknife. The question always
0: begs to be asked, how was your trip up?
1: Well, it was, a, it was seven days. Uh, we, we pulled up stakes. All our friends thought we were absolutely crazy uh, to leave the comfort womb of southern Ontario and secure jobs and everything. But it was an adventure. It was an adventure to go north. So we loaded our Saint Bernard and a cat, and uh, the two of us in a Volkswagen Beetle, and drove to Yellowknife. Having a month before purchased our home, which was also trailered up to Yellowknife and ended up in a trailer park in Yellowknife, and uh, uh, we uh, we started a new phase of our life. I mean that was that was how it was back then so it was it was a tremendous adventure because uh, the arctic even though it was cold temperature wise it was extremely warm in human relations you know a small town 5600 people but we were aware that there was a tremendous growth going on in yellowknife and and there was a there was a buzz there was a very much of an excitement because the arctic was opening up and i think economically and politically and in every way it was becoming uh, and it was it was a gold town you know the two gold mines were were the basis of of uh, the uh, basis of the economic uh, situation we we, uh, we experienced a growth in the Arctic that was quite unique and it was a bit of a window on time you know it wasn't it had just sort of started and we were there at the right place you know at the right time to see that development and of course it wasn't just the development of the city and the and the north it was there was an arts development going on too there was a willingness for people to glom on to the excitement of singing in a choir or playing in a band there were some there were there were people there who who had instrumental uh, some instrumental technique from their from their high school education who moved into the uh, to Yellowknife and they willingly wanted to play in a in an ensemble so uh, it was relatively easy to put that together and uh, we had some interesting times you know I did forget one point. We we actually turned down the job initially. I did. I said, "Well, I'm sorry, we can't go." And the person who was hiring us, hiring me to work in the school, said, "Well, we really want you to come." And I said, "Well, you you, you can't accommodate a dog. in the in the accommodation you're you're offering me. I uh, had a Saint Bernard. and uh, So I said, well, is there an alternative? And he said, well, actually there is an alternative. You could live in in our brand new trailer park, Northland Trailer Park. And I can put you in touch with the person who can sell you a trailer or, or whatever, but we can find you a lot there. And then you could bring your dog and you'd get a subsidy for living outside of the government housing. So I did some research in a couple of weeks and found out that I could buy a trailer in Ontario and put my canoe in it and other things and drive up there. And uh, all we needed to do was get somebody to, to take it. So that's what we did. We bought a trailer in Exeter, Ontario. And we got a guy who was deadheading it back to Manning, Alberta, and he happened to go the rest of the way and dropped it off in Yellowknife. And that was our home for... All the time we lived in Yonkers. Well, until we bought a house on 52nd Street. So uh, that's what I mean about the adventure of it all. It wasn't just musical adventure; it was everything adventure. And we didn't have a television set. When we got a television set, I took a picture of the uh, weather report one morning, and it was 36 below zero. Sent it, sent it in a, in, you know, put it in an envelope, and sent it back to our friends in. And these were days when there wasn't any internet or anything like that. I mean, telephone calls happened on a Sunday when you could afford to call. <laughs> so it had challenges that way because uh, we were separate from family, you know. So, But looking back, uh, one of the most important decisions we ever made was to move north.
0: You've already sort of touched on this, but... Um, um and it really seems like you say there was this, this, these beginnings of uh, arts, community arts, uh, programming in the north. Um, and within the educational system, if I could ask you sort of what was the uh, state, uh, uh, um, or, or where, where was the music curriculum at when you arrived? So, the... The music curriculum
1: and the curriculum generally in the schools in Yellowknife was basically the Alberta curriculum. It was the Alberta school system. And the curriculum was set in Alberta. And so, you know, and it was grade 10, 11, 12. There was no grade 13, so it was four years. uh, Or three years. 9, 10, 11, 12. Not sure whether there was a grade 9 in the school. I think it was 10 than the, the school before. So it was a three-year program. And and I arrived in 73, so 73-4, and by 77 we had our first graduated class. And those three years we did amazing things within the structure of the school program. But there were rehearsals constantly after school. And and what I remember is that the music room was really a center of activity. All, all the music students and others met in the music room and pick up instruments and played, and we, we, had, we had various ensembles that were, and then once or twice a week we had a big band rehearsal and so on, and then it was getting band music in, you know, which had to be purchased and brought in, and I needed budget for that and so on. And and the administration at the time um, slowly became aware that there was an interest in building this up, so instruments were purchased. I remember uh, there was quite a bit of money spent uh, along the way, because if you didn't have your own instrument as a student, you had to have an instrument, so the school I, I'm pretty sure we equipped the whole music room with a set of clarinets and flutes and we had a th- three, four or five saxophones, I mean these are expensive instruments. We had one tuba, uh, or then a couple of tubas, a baritone, trombones, trumpets. Uh, but we gradually built that up, and then in the community, we didn't do any choral music in the school, it was all instrumental, but in the community we had a, we had a choral presence. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to sort of marry the two disciplines. and we had some instrumental work done as accompaniment to the choir and concerts organized that crossed into the community and so on so. Uh, but somehow it worked out. like we, we had a thriving music program by the end of the '70s. I mean it was room was full and as I mentioned to you earlier, that eventually we were traveling so much, and, and it was every semester we had a major trip, and it was into the north. Uh, the budget, including the air transport, was bigger than the operating budget of the school. And the impact, the impact was, was very, very interesting, because we were called on by the, uh, by the commissioner uh, to put together a stage band or a dance band, because the commissioner had a problem. In order to get his uh, legislative balls operating, he would have had to get a band up in a Hercules from Edmonton or Calgary. So it was to his advantage to basically get us to provide a a, a dance band. And I I remember I got some charts. I can't even remember where I got them from, but we had... uh, we had swing pieces that were well known to the people that were attending these balls, and we were able to put together a sound that, that was acceptable, you know, with, because they could dance to it. So that was an exciting time, sort of a breakthrough. And, and then uh, there was never any problem getting travel and airplanes, and, you know, to, to use for the other parts of the, of the program. Um, but, but also musically, it was, a, it was an exciting time because the whole music program uh, had, had another layer. There was the dance layer, and then there was more classical, and then the more um, idiomatic band music that we played and so on and toured around with and took north. I remember we did in Oak Canada, in Coppermine, and when we did it on one tour and we recorded the O Canada in every community that we visited uh, in the earlier years. And for years later I heard that they had used that O Canada every time they opened the, the day of school. So that was kind of a heady experience that uh, the the impact of the the concert band, small concert band that visited every day, they heard it,
0: you know. You wanted to do that for sure. Yeah. What factors and circumstances made the events and the initiatives that you led to be successful? So, I, I've
1: I've been, you know, I'm now seventy three, and I've done well over five hundred concerts in communities in which I've lived in this country, and everywhere I've lived. Thousands of people who have. Uh, and the one factor that has always been there is you have to get parent or community support. You've got to somehow with the, with the program, either in a school, you have to connect to the community. It can't just be separate. It can't just be an academic exercise. Music and music making and the whole idea of community music and community arts programs has to have an intimate connection with something else in the community now in many cases it was the business community but also the service clubs the the uh, uh you know for instance that there was a military base in in, in Yellowknife and and they needed uh one year they came to me and asked me we want to have an Oktoberfest. and i said well that's no problem not really knowing what what i was talking about by saying that well what I was talking about is you had to have Oktoberfest music and you had to have an, an Oktoberfest band which is basically a tuba, trombone clarinet, drums and trumpet you know and, and you got to play German music you know so that's what I mean but once we got that in place it was re- it, we could replicate it every year 'Cause we had the we had the charts and we had the we had the idea of an Oktoberfest band. You know, you dress up in Liederhosen and you look German and you, you play really quite simple music, but the impact for the people that don't know anything about music was enormous. They loved it. Uh, and that that drew in uh, military families that were away from home living in Yellowknife or in Inuvik. And all of a sudden, they were connecting because, oh, okay, I, we're going to go to the concert. It was, an, it was a night out uh, during October. Just one example. And then and then churches. Sometimes they'd have special services where they needed, or for instance, um, uh, um, November 11th. There's always a musical presence for, for special uh, occasions like November 11th or Christmas. Everybody wants to sing Christmas carols at Christmas. So you had, if you had a band that could play them, then you were connecting with the with the soul of the community. You weren't separate from the community. You were connecting. So to answer your question, that's over the years, and certainly in those early years, very soon I realized, you know, that one of the first gigs we ever had were, were six people on a float going down the main street of uh, of Yellowknife for. Uh, the, the, the celebration at the beginning of uh, September,
0: in the summer. You mean the longest day? Yeah, something like that.
1: Anyway, it was, a, it was a parade. It was a parade. So if somebody said to me, well, we need a band for a parade, I didn't say, oh no, we can't do that. I just figured out how to do it. Because if I didn't, I'd lose that, that thing. So if you say yes enough times, that does two things over the years. That wears you out, which I'm reaching that point now, right? Or and also the opposite of that is you created an incredible excitement and buzz, which people are attracted to. Uh, so as long as you had the the buy-in from the community, music music has tremendous health benefits for everybody that's involved. Especially if they're playing and breathing and, and and doing all the things that's required to to be involved with music, there's unbelievable health benefits. Um, it's like breathing. After a while, it it it's an essential part of the fabric of a community. The fact that you can you can find an outlet to express yourself in performance it doesn't have to be high level performance, but you can still derive a tremendous amount of satisfaction by playing in a group or singing in a group. That went on in Yellowknife all the time. That went on, I mean, we had the singing north in Yellowknife, 65 singers. All adults, there's a picture on the wall over there, one of the choirs, right in the corner. I remember when, when we had our first rehearsal in September one year, I stood up and I said, okay, what I'd like to do is a Messiah performance in December. And pretty much everybody in the room said, well, we can't do that. How are you ever going to get us to sing those choruses and so on? I said, well, just watch me. And that was the year we had our first... Messiah performance, it was a, it was a piano accompanied Messiah, you were in it, so was Angela and, and Christina I think, and uh, the piano player was Marg Sotheby. And she, uh, in the performance got lost, or I got lost, in the Amen Chorus, or the, uh, not the Hallelujah Chorus, but the Amen Chorus, the final piece in the program, and uh, we we were so lost for a moment, for, I don't know, four bars or something, she stopped playing and shouted out, where are we? (laughs) And I shouted back, I said, bar 75. She went in. We started again and finished the piece. I mean, the next year we had it right, and eventually we ended up with string players from the Edmonton Symphony. Sort of an annual thing. So uh, people felt really good about those those times. You know, I mean, those are those are moments where when people were involved in them, they'll never forget them. It's a historic event. There were there were many situations in that short period of time, I would say, three years, where indeed history was being made in the music business. Absolutely for sure. And then eventually um, got a call from Ottawa and uh, somebody said to me uh, in an office uh, in Ottawa early one morning when I was living in anuvik that uh, they were going to send the Toronto Symphony. And uh, I said, no, you're not, this is crazy. No, we've got the money and so on. And the next person on the phone was David Crombie. And he said, yes, Roy, this, this is going to happen. We've got the funding and we want you to be the uh, lead in this thing in the, in the, in the Arctic. And I was living there at the time and I said, well, uh, no problem, huh? do what you want. He said, the first thing we need is a twin otter, and uh, can you make that happen? And I said, well, as long as you call the commissioner. And he said, it's already been done. So I went across the street, stood in, stood in the office. Before, uh, Danny Norris was the, was the uh, administrator in the Arctic at the time. And I just sat there, left my office as principal of Samuel School. And sat there, and finally he said, "What do you want?" I went into the office. I said, "I just I need a twin otter for a year, at my disposal." And he said, "Well, that isn't going to happen." I, I, what do you think? I don't have a twin otter. I said, "Would you just make a phone call to to, uh, to John Parker and and, and I get his assistant at least?" And uh, he was on the phone for less than two minutes. And he turned to me and he said, You have your, your, your plane for the year. So that set up the 1987 uh, symphony trip that uh, was the first time the Toronto Symphony, or any orchestra, had ever gone to the Arctic. And it was revered, filmed, National Film Board film, Rhombus Media, the Northern Odyssey symphony trip, okay. 1987. So things like that just kept happening you know through the years and of course anybody who was involved with them they were they were uh, they were moved and changed because it was a frontier it was still a frontier I mean if I if I thought more deeply I could I could find that in my memory many many others like trips into isolated communities when over lunch i told you about the uh, the time we went to holman island and got the got the uh, community to come to a band concert in a snowstorm in the gym of their high school or in their public school you know and and we got in the back of a truck at 30 below 0 and played instruments down this main street we were an anom- we were crazy uh, who are these people window blinds opened and people looked at the truck go along the the only street in town and of course they're curious so they ended up at the concert and uh, remember uh, you know inuit kids reaching and touching a french horn bell and realizing that they'd never seen one they'd never heard one they'd never heard a french horn they never they couldn't imagine what it would sound like they probably did on the radio but they never were in the presence of a of a a brass instrument like that. Their instruments were fiddles, and and other music made drums and that kind of thing. And uh, then I realized that what we were playing was a Mozart piece that was a transcription of some other kind of idiom, and all of a sudden I realized that Mozart wrote that piece 300 years before, and this kid was from an ancestry that lived 300 years also in another part of the world. And that was the first intersection of the of the arts. Through the arts of those two cultures. Bang, there it was, starkly in front of all of us. As the kid reached and touched the So very powerful moving moments and there were many of them. There were many of them. Um, and and you know when those things happen, the Music becomes an essential part of a person's life that experiences it. I think one of the very exciting uh, interactions and kinds of interactions were with um, elders, indigenous Inuit and Dene elders. Uh, and. How open they they were to new um, artistic stimuli, specifically, uh, when we put together concerts that had they were live concerts, so they were string players, which is traditionally a western um, western civilization concept it's not it 's not an indigenous concept because and, and indigenous music had other influences and it had a huge history. I mean, there are five, six thousand years of drumming, for instance, and tunes that were played on, you know, various, various kinds of instruments, but they weren't the, the traditional orchestral instruments or any of those kind of things. So when you introduce beauty, which is in both cultures, but through the medium of of uh, you know clarinets and trumpets and and tubas, and yet they still had the same kind of kind of power artistically it it became a curiosity for them because it was out of their experience and I remember many times when uh, when both the high school program and also the community programs playing musical things that were more traditional Western music, but the reaction of some of the thing, And I, I have one example, and that was a woman who, uh, who told me at the time, she was, a, she was a young woman, but she was the head of the Education Authority in Fort, Fort McPherson, and uh, uh, her name was Sarah Jerome and I've never forgotten her name. And uh, she was so moved after we played in Fort McPherson uh, sections of the Vivaldi Gloria with an orchestra and a choir. All the elders were sitting intently listening to this, came to the concert in, in a hall in Fort McPherson, and we had a traditional string group and the choir singing in Latin the, and it and it moved her so deeply that years later when she visited Toronto uh, unbeknownst to me I didn't recognize her but I took her to the Toronto Symphony because she requested it she said I would like to go to the big orchestra and uh, we went to that concert and she told me when I took her back to her hotel room Do you know who I am and it was the same person much older but she had never forgotten the the introduction to that. So that was one. And then when the Toronto Symphony went north, the impact of the large orchestra in the north, in uh, J. H. Sisson's elementary school gym, and the first three rows were all of the elders from the whole region. They sat there and listened to Sibelius, uh, which is a connection that they'd never experienced before. And there wasn't a person there who wasn't in tears, just for the sheer beauty of the music. So, all of, all of what went on in the music making through the school and in the community, was all, it's all worth it, because uh, it, it laid down an imprint on many, many people, old and young. When we went on those trips, the people in the communities where we visited, we shared because we had many times when they would play their music and we would play our music. So we were learning too. I'd never experienced a uh, a drum circle, for instance, until I went to the to the far Arctic and stayed up late at night to the the beat of the the drum and. It, it's interesting about that because um, there's a there's a phenomenon in uh, uh, the Middle East of, of a musical uh, uh, style, and it's it, it, it's it's a dervish, it's a whirling dervish type of style, and it's a it's a it's a rising of ecstasy, and it, it's connected to uh, very deep religious beliefs. And recently, I've just I've experienced that in Egypt, and was had the same kind of experience. Like it was, I was sort of moved, but I didn't realize why until I I suddenly realized that as the minutes were ticking by of this 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 increasing energy in the music, that actually I was being carried along with it, and that's the same thing that happens with with uh, indigenous drumming and lots of western cultured people don't understand that about native drumming so um, and by the same token when we played for instance the Vivaldi Gloria it's it's built on the same principles artistically because it, it gets more excited as, at the end but it's more controlled because it's within a, a classical music context rather than more of a free kind of whirling, dervish kind of context. So all of these threads were operating back in those years, and I didn't understand them all. I just knew that we, we kept having exciting experiences, you know, with, with music that uh, everybody seemed to enjoy and everybody seemed to buy into, or,
0: or many people. Not everybody, but every, many
1: people, so...
0: Who were some of the characters outside of the event in itself that sort of facilitated and made those possible? Oh,
1: yeah, oh, yeah. So so in, in Yellowknife, none of this could have happened without some uh, person or a sort of class of person that were buying in that had influence and were able to make major decisions. Uh, one of those was Stuart Hodgson, who... As, as I worked with him closely on, on a number of special occasions, he really got it. And, of course, he was the commissioner of the Northwest Territory, so um, to have a guy like that understanding, either directly or innately understanding at, to some level, when you had his support, then there was never any problem with money. There wasn't any, you know, somehow, Things kind of worked out, and in many cases, I never realized why. The other one was the owner of uh, Northwest Territorial Airlines. He had a Twin Otter and a DC-3, not a Twin Otter, a DC-3 and a DC-6, and I could call him any time. I mean, he was, he was right on track. He, he understood what was going on. He he had the adventurous spirit. It was kind of like um, um, it was kind of like uh, Max Ward, bush pilot, spent his young life, you know, going into the Arctic off in a small plane, and then built a, a major world airline. Um, so that's the that's what I call a sort of northern front-touristic spirit the people that were moving up into the North, if they had creative tendencies or they had a, a, a sort of sort of feeling of connection and alignment with arts development, and they had that frontierist experience, anything became possible. I mean, we literally flew into remote places and, and brought music to, to people who had never experienced it before. They could never imagine it. They maybe heard it on the radio, but there it was, right in front of them, and it's, it's extremely different when it's sitting right in front of you and you're live. You, you, anybody can listen to a recording, but there's a different, completely different dynamic when it's live than you see and hear in the present, the, the artistry. It's, it's one of the unique things about music. It's not like a piece of art on the wall. It's alive the minute the first notes played. <laughs> so, oh, one other one other example. One other. I, I mean, I, that question is very is very interesting about others being drawn into it. And I I go to the 1987 uh, sim, um, Toronto Symphony tour that went into a, a Nunavik, a Klavik, Tuktyaktek, and I believe Fort McPherson. There were parts of the orchestra that went into those communities. And these were people who grew up in Toronto, in southern Ontario, and honed and, and their craft as, as musicians, joined the orchestra, somehow got into the Toronto Symphony, and then traveled north and brought their skills face-to-face with people who had never heard them before. But the impact on their visit to those remote communities because I was right in the middle of all of that and I, was, I had defeated in both camps, you see. So, uh, the, the significant and dramatic impact on their understanding of the North became very apparent when I watched them interact with... with uh, and there, there's one example, there was, a, there was an interview with the, one of the oboe players in the symphony, his name is Frank Morphy. And Frank had an interview with a guy on a radio station. Now, I don't know exactly where it was. It was one of the far north radio stations. And um, the, one of the questions that, that this interviewer, he was a, an Inuit interviewer, and he said, Well, now, Mr. Morphy, tell me about the oboe. You know, we, we don't have oboes here, you know. And he, he asked the, the obvious questions, and of course, Frank, who was, seat, you know, he was completely immersed in his whole life in music and, the, and traditional university training and Royal Conservatory technique and all that kind of thing, was now put in a position where he had to actually respond to somebody who knew nothing about it, and it was it was really a moving thing, and it was in the it was in the movie, uh, the interview and the pictures of Frank being interviewed by this person, and it changed him. He said, oh my, I, I had no idea that, that nobody, that there was somebody out there that didn't understand what a symphony orchestra was, but why would anybody who lives in a remote Inuit community in the far north ever have any experience with that? So it was, and he told me that. Frank told me that. He said, I had no idea I had no idea that I was so ignorant <laughs> and I, I think I think music has the power when it's when it's introduced into those situations of bridging those gaps and making both sides realize there's a wisdom on the other side. you know we interacted with Andrew Davis who's one of the best still operating uh, in, in 2018, as a as a major worldwide conductor, he's currently a conductor of the Toronto Symphony. He's in his uh, 70s, and he was on that trip, and uh, you know, had his final party was at Ingamo Hall, and and, uh, and he ate uh, he ate raw meat, he ate fish, he ate he ate country food, uh, and and. Not just he, but his entourage, his wife. And, you know, these are all sort of white, (laughs) Anglo-Saxon, very good musicians, right? And they walked away. Uh, I know this because I spoke to many of them after, you know, when I came back to Ontario. And I still have contact with some. And um, it changes you when you are in the face of another culture like that. So those years, uh, there were many people. That, I mean, if I if I reflected more and more and more, I'd, I'd come up with other names. Uh, uh, it's a very good question, that question about the impact on on the minds and hearts of
0: of people, and the whole issue is you've got to stay open to it. Uh, at that time, there was people. Your again allies. Uh, who were doing the the groundwork and stuff uh, like that, who would some of those folks have been? um? So, um,
1: for instance, um, uh, uh, there were were mining companies and there were bank managers and there were the earlier stages of computer programmers who all were adults. you know, they were, they were 30 years old and up, who were living in Yellowknife. Um, and they had experience playing an instrument in their high school career. So they came, they were transplanted from the south, high school programs where they played the flute and the clarinet and this sort of thing, as kids. And then they moved to the north and they took their clarinet with them or their trombone or whatever. So um, one of those people was Pat Carney. So Pat Carney when she before she was minister of uh, energy for for Canada she was a third clarinet player in the in the Yellowknife City Band. She was a, a consultant with a company called Gemini North worked with Another man, Frank Basham, and the two of them were uh, both musicians, amateur musicians. And uh, Pat told me in those years that that was her, her recreation. But it was far more than that, because we used to travel. We took that band into the community. So there was Pat Carney, who was a major leader in this country for a number of years in the, in the Mulroney government. And she was the third clarinet player in the concert band. So, when she visited communities, with native communities, she was exposed through music, through her her music, and so were all those other people. Uh, Angus Payton was the was a tuba player in the band. He was the bank manager for the Bank of uh, Bank of Commerce, or one of the major banks in 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 Yellowknife. Those people were very very important. adults that were supporting. So then when the when the high school music program needed support in some way, like attendance at audiences and that sort of thing, all of a sudden, oh yeah, it all links together. They're going to come to the concerts, they're going to support financially. Um, and that's how you build a, a cultural matrix that that bridges all of culture in a place like like uh, that was just the instrumental side of it. The other side was the choral side. We had a group called The Singing North that did Messiah performances, full Messiahs with soloists and everything. And they were coming out of the woodwork. And, and the, that wasn't as connected to the, to the indigenous people as it, I wanted it to be. But still, it was on the periphery, and there were some that were dipping in. As I say, Sarah Jerome, she was she was open-minded at the time, and 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 was moved to greater understanding of what that art form was about. When we built NAC, Northern Arts and Cultural Center, uh, there were lots of connections that were developing there because that was, it, at that time in 191980, whenever NAC was built, 1978 or nine or. It was in the '80s. It was in the '80s, 1981. That was when it was. Um, that drew in the entire country, because the funding came from every province in the country through the through Roy McGarry from the Globe and Mail. Um, that's where the money came from, and locally, there were local things. In the in, when we opened that, uh, Peter Zosky was the was flew in for the. And opera singers and people who were very excited about finally a a theater in the in the only capital city in the in the country that didn't have one. That was Roy McGarry's vision. So it's a it's a it was a time in those years when visions were being realized. And in this day and age, in this country. A lot of visions just get shelved and put on a shelf. You, you, know, you write a report, it goes somewhere. It's never actualized. In those years, things were getting done. There was progress being made in bridging, as I say, and, and creating this matrix of understanding of the cultural dynamics in the North. There were good times, really good times.
0: I would like to thank Roy for sharing his rich musical life story with musicians of The Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life, and the full interview transcript, check out MusiciansOfTheMidnightSun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, MusiciansOfTheMidnightSun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series. And to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture, and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Brayton. Thanks for listening.